Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. I read in the paper that some unfortunate people have recently been seeing flying saucers again. I say unfortunate not because I think they were in any way deluded or of less than normal intelligence, but because the consequences of seeing a flying saucer are, to say the least, peculiar and not at all pleasant. Let me, out of loyalty to my fellow sufferers, break a ten-year vow of silence and tell you about my own experiences, a thing I swore I would never do again. In the wonderful, endless, cloudless summer of 1959, I was living in a cottage in a very beautiful part of Sussex. The cottage was on the slope of a hill called Blackdown, and it commanded a view not only of the Sussex Weald, but of all the flat country that stretched away towards London, which was about 50 miles distant. It had been bequeathed to me by a distinguished English fellow poet, it dated back to the 16th century, and it was haunted. But that's another story. There was nothing wraith-like about what I saw. The summer dusks of that year were unforgettable, and it was sometimes my habit to take a little stroll up the hill and stand idly looking at the view. On this particular evening, it was not quite dusk, more that moment when the afterglow of day is all about one and about the fields and woods. I was standing on the hillside when suddenly I looked up and saw something in the sky. It was a round disc and it glowed red, not exactly as if it were luminous, but as if it was made of some sort of translucent substance and there was some sort of red light inside it. It appeared to be some miles distant and at first it stood quite still in the sky. Then, slowly, it began to revolve on its axis, simply turning over and over so that the red circle diminished to a cigar shape, became a black line, and then expanded again. I stood astonished, but more was to come. The thing became immobile again for a while, clear against the clearest of summer evening skies. Then it shot up in the air, a couple of thousand feet or more, it seemed to me, poised itself for a second, and shot down again. Not content with this apparently impossible manoeuvre, it began, after staying in its original position for a few seconds, to shoot first to the left and then to the right, covering at least a mile in each direction, at a speed far greater than that of any possible earthly flying machine. It all went on for ages, for so long, in fact, that I had time to run a bit down the hill and shout for my wife to join me and come and watch it too. Finally, it shot off towards London, again at incredible speed, and disappeared into the now thickening dusk. So much for what I saw. Now for the consequences. I don't normally report things to the powers that be, but I couldn't resist reporting this extraordinary manifestation to someone. So I got into my old van and drove to the nearest village. Let us call it Chipping Cowfold. I told the girl on the telephone exchange in the nearest town that I wanted to be put through to some sort of air ministry or air force station and after some time and much in searching of coinage, I was. The man I eventually got talking to was, I believe, called the duty officer, and he had a public school accent. He listened to my story in what seemed to me a rather overdone silence. I finished. He said, In what direction was this object proceeding when you say it disappeared? I said, Towards London. He said, With that touch of irony the public school accent is so well suited for, now, sir, I think we can take it that they're well able to look after themselves up there. And that was the end of it. Humbled but not mollified, 
I emerged from the corn box. A large policeman was standing by the old van, idly and superciliously kicking a front wheel with a big foot. I rushed up to him. Officer, I said, I have just seen a flying saucer. I wonder if there have been any other reports. He looked at me. Could I see your driving license, sir, he said. I produced it. And your insurance? Fortunately, I had it with me. He studied both documents. You haven't by any chance been drinking, sir, he said. I assured him I had not, and he seemed content to let the lunatic go. I went into the saloon bar of the Rose and Crown. It was deserted, but there was a noisy crowd in the public. My host came, and I told my story. He listened, as barmen always will, but just as I finished, he was called out to the public bar. A moment later, I distinctly heard his voice. You know what Paddy's been and gone and done now? He's been and gone and seen a flipping flying saucer. Amid the howl of laughter, I finished my drink and left. So much for the first experience. Now for the second. In 1960, I was living in a primitive but pleasant village in the mountains above Malaga. One night I sat late at the wine, and about six o'clock in the morning I went to the cafe attached to the fruit market, which was the first open. It was full of hale and hearty men drinking anise and brandy in preparation for a hard day in the orange groves, as indeed they do every morning of their lives. I had a drink and left. It was a beautiful morning, primavera, and I walked down the road a bit. One man on muleback passed me, otherwise all was deserted. I looked out and down towards Malaga and the Mediterranean. Suddenly I saw the same thing, a red disc in the morning sky performing the same irrational manoeuvres. I rushed back to the cafe. I have seen an extraordinary thing, I said. Everybody gathered round, Spaniards are full of curiosity. A flying saucer, I said, and incidentally the Spanish for flying saucer is flying saucer. Everybody drifted away. It is nada, the barman said, nothing. In España we see them todo el tiempo, all the time. babysitting hadn't been invented in the early 30s but we had an old and beautiful cleaning woman who used to perform that service in addition to scrubbing and polishing every Saturday. It was known as keeping an eye on the children. Those were the days when the Abbey Theatre ran an extra matinee performance every week and my play mad parents never missed it. Waving fond and no doubt thankful farewells to my brother and me as we hung over the front gate they would set off around two o'clock and never be seen again until six. When the day was fine, Mrs Cleary usually made short but efficient work of the scrubbing and then took us by bus to her own place, out by Dunny Carney. Even then, once you passed an old country house to the left of the village, there was a raw new housing estate, but it was only two houses deep and beyond it was a green lane leading over a stile to the green fields. Set among beeches and chestnuts was a long lime-washed farmhouse. We used to be ankle-deep in buttercups long before we reached it, and my brother was usually complaining about being tired. 
I'll heist you then like a Pac-Man on my back, Mrs. Cleary would say. The jumble syntax didn't bother us, and that's how he would arrive. We would be nourished with milk warm from the cows, and griddle bread so fresh that the home-churned butter melted into it. Mrs Cleary's eldest daughter, Nancy, often complained at being asked to cut her new bread before it was even cool, but her mother would quickly hush her into hospitable silence. Winter and summer, there was a huge open fire in the stone-flagged kitchen, and they did all the cooking on the blackened hooks above it. Water was carried from a pump beyond the stile, and drinking water from a well two fields away. From a place high in the roof, called The Room Above, you could see the elegant Georgian house in which lived the man Mick Cleary farmed for. This gentleman's great-grandfather had probably built the farmhouse for a herdsman sometime around 1800, when voting for the Union made many a man a landowner who wouldn't have been one otherwise. Mrs Cleary's husband, I never heard her call him anything but Cleary, farmed these fields anyhow as though they were his own. He was herd, ploughman, sower and reaper, all in one, with the occasional help of his four sons. A man of few words, he would welcome us by leading the way down sloping fields to a particularly fine chestnut tree, which had a traditional use in that family. Rope slung over one shoulder, horse blanket over the other, Mr Cleary would hum Fenian ballads as we trudged after him. Often the humming would turn into mild cursing, as he tried to fix the looped rope over the correct branch of the chestnut. And when he succeeded at last, the folded horse blanket was made into a seat for this improvised swing. I well remember the power and the glory of being pushed up into the green other world of the great tree, a sort of cathedral of a tree, through whose windows the sun struck fiercely on the upswing. Coming down, it was all gloom and coolness again, then up once more into the lancing sunlight, with the screams of my brother below demanding his turn uselessly, as he should have known. Finally, drunk with power, greed and movement, I would be casually grabbed by Mr Cleary and picked off like an apple, to be replaced by the shouting small boy who would never know the heights I had known because he wasn't heavy enough. One day, not so long ago, on my way to visit a friend who has a new house, I tried to find some of the unforgotten territory of those summer Saturdays, but nothing remains. Who can say which identical semi-detached is built over the dead roots of that great tree, or which little square of garden covers the place where Mrs Cleary's chickens used to run, or which pair of garages has been built over the foundations of that old farmhouse? All I can be sure of is that long ago, in another world, when babysitting was unheard of and the old Abbey Theatre ran matinees every Saturday, my brother and I were deep in summer meadows and it was out by Dunny Carney. I went to the fair of Carrickmacross to buy some calves. 
Although this fair is the usual small town fair, I went with some excitement, for it was here I spent many a young day. It dawned on me, as soon as I'd paid over the money for two calves, that I'd been stuck. You see, there are two ways of buying cattle. One of them is the ordinary way that men who know their business observe. The manner I adopted was to wait till I saw a bargain nearly completed and during a lapse in the hand-clapping to step in and quietly whisper to the seller that I would give him what he was finally asking. This method is liable to get a man a blow of an ash plant on the skull. The man who was selling the calves was a typical, sharp-faced, long-nosed, small, monaghan farmer. He must have seen me coming. Around him and his two heifers was a knot of buyers, as I imagined, and the deal was progressing thus. I'll give you twenty-eight for them too. I'll not take down thirty the day. I'll get it coming on the road, clear to pocket of that. The seller made a dash with his plan through a crowd of cattle to keep his own from getting upset or removed from the high position in which they stood for strategic reasons. Then he resumed his original posture on the street and grumbled to a neighbour something about his losing four quid by bringing the bastes to Carrick. Aye, I was offered the thirty-one all up. You'll get it again, said the other, for you have the nicest wee stuff in the fair. A grand pair of colourly calves. I liked the calves myself. They were two heifers of fifteen months or so, well fit to put the winter in without needing a warm drink. I'm afraid I rather coveted them, and more especially as I saw the other buyers so anxious for them. Peter, Peter, come here, one of the buyers called to his companion who had retreated some distance. You'll divide the last two pound, both of you, and make it a dale. The seller swished his ash plant in space. I stood as indifferently as I could apart, pretending to look poetically at the broken paling on the side of the sloping, guttery bank. I suspected that these men might be aware of my profession, and I must play the part. The road was muddy, and the November sky had that cold, watery appearance which demands a drink of whisky. I'll give you twenty-nine, not a penny more, I heard. Down thirty, they'll not be sold a day. I'll divide the other quid with you. It's no use to me, Peter. You know that them's none of your hoosy calves that should need to be given the bucket every day to keep them alive. The commotion ceased, and I found myself face to face with the buyer the others had left. I'll give you the thirty, I said simply. It is no theatrical exaggeration to say that that grey-faced, long-nosed fellow nearly fainted. I paid him out the money, six fivers, which he handed to a neighbour to count, before putting it in his long rag purse with a drawstring. "'You'll give me a look, Penny,' says I. "'I will and welcome,' says he, and he spat on a half-crown as he handed it to me. This all sounds stage-Irish, but it is the bare, understated truth. Manners haven't changed a lot since I first went to a fair. I casually inquired of the man as to where he came from, and he told me a place on the road from Carrickmacross to Cross Maglen. Then I knew I had been stuck. For although the rhyme which tells of the many rogues to be found on this road is something of a slander, there is still some truth in it. For between Carrickmacross and Cross Maglen, you'll meet more rogues of Dale and men than anywhere else I know. Here... The farms are small and the land poor, and nearly every man is a dealer in something. Since the cross-border smuggling began in earnest, many of these small dealers have become small capitalists, and ass-dealers whom I knew a few years ago are now in a big way of business. 
Maybe you'd buy a couple more, said the fellow who had heard the first deal. I have a pair of good ones there. And he pointed to two little bastes that you'd think could tell fortune, so old-fashioned they looked. Those pair of calves evoked for me the little angular hills of South Monaghan. I was no longer interested, for I had a queer feeling, like many men are said to have the day after they get married, that I'd made a bad bargain. I told the long-nosed fellow to drive my pair of calves out the town while I followed at a safe distance, as I still realised that my dealing methods entitled me to the ash plant. As I watched the calves being driven through the crowded fair, they seemed to get smaller and uglier, and I noticed that one of them had a cough. However, I wasn't too dissatisfied when I thought of the inflation of sterling, and if the animals lived, they'd be worth the money sometime. A little fellow, who was what is called a tangler, a neighbour of my own, met me outside the town. A tangler is another name for a blocker, and if that's still a puzzle, a blocker is a small, crooked, dalen man who helps to make bargains. This fellow was an intimate acquaintance of my childhood and was the two ends of a trickster if ever there was one. He was a little fellow with a brown complexion and as much loose skin on his neck as would go round it several times. He examined the calves. How much did you waste on them, lads? How much do you think, I said. The tangler considered a moment. You have a ten-pound base there and a nine-ten. Did you give more than that for them? I didn't want to tell too big a lie, so I said I gave twenty-five. The tangler gasped as he walked round the calf. Twenty-five, he whistled. Twenty-five? Be this, Paddy, what were you thinking about? You bought colour all the same, he added to console me. Twenty-five, twenty oh. You wouldn't sell that big one. I could let you out on that one. Driving the calves home, I was not unhappy. It was a clear, frosty evening, and as I talked to the homing folk, I had recovered my childhood. Darkness was falling as I arrived near home. A girl passed on her way from town, and I thought of those lovely ballad lines. And then she went homeward with one star awake, as the swan in the evening moves over the lake. And one star was awake for me. It shone over Drumnagrilla, and it was the star of my childhood's memory. Having little or no business in our capital's principal thoroughfare, I rarely find myself in O'Connell Street these days. But recently, some purpose brought me there and gave me the opportunity of taking a new look at the old, well-beloved Boulevard. Boulevard is, I expect, too harmonious a word to describe this broad river of sluggish, motorised traffic, bumper-to-bumper juggernauts and imprisoned double-deckers, yet it once applied in more elegant, if less egalitarian, times. The Liberator, with his retinue of attendant mortals and angels, stands as ever, 
bronzely calm and undisturbed, well above the fretful flow beneath, while at the furthest end the chief still proclaims that no man can halt the march of a nation or fix the nay plus ultra, at the precise point where the traffic is commanded to make a detour to the left. Incidentally, all the statues in the street, as well as those of Parnell and O'Connell, face south, turning their backs, as it were, on the north side is. Would it perhaps be an idea if the proposed memorial to James Larkin, shortly to join the resident statuary, were to face north? I miss Nelson's pillar, but the street misses it more. It was a tremendous architectural statement, which held the entire scene together somehow, that immensely striking Doric column which had become almost the symbol of Dublin, like the Eiffel Tower is of Paris, or Big Ben is of London. Without it, the street lost its special character, its stature, and became, at least to my mind, provincial. Another gaping void is now provided by the demolition of the Metropole Theatre, which has left O'Connell Street like a mouth with a prominent front tooth missing. Looking up in the sky, where the ballroom was, starlings wheel and flock, where we once fox-trotted and boogie-woogied. A wartime memory, still clear, was that of taking a girl, wearing a full-length evening gown, home on the handlebars of a bicycle on a stormy January night, from a ball in that same metropole. Gone too, but not missed, is the once infamous bowl of light which once disgraced O'Connell's Bridge. It was built as Dublin's contribution to Antostal, a festival of culture and national identity decreed by the then government, more or less modelled on the Festival of Britain and with the same avowed intention of putting new heart into us and generally recharging our patriotic batteries. For months before this civic ornament was revealed, it was the city's best-kept secret. The corporation surrounded the work in progress with a high wooden screen through which no iota could be discerned, so chinkless was it. A Soviet-guided missile was no better hidden from a prying eye, nor was Fort Knox more secure from the attentions of unauthorised parties than the interior mysteries of this structure. Curiosity could no longer contain itself by the time the momentous day at last arrived for its unveiling. The Lord Mayor, the City Fathers and all sorts of dignitaries, political and ecclesiastical, flocked there, while the citizens in their thousands thronged the bridge. It was to be a great occasion. Whether the wooden walls fell like those of Jericho to a trumpet blast, I cannot now remember. But it seems the thing suddenly presented itself. There was a gasp of awe here and a gasp of horror there, for this was a very eclectic audience, but the general reaction was one of incredulity and disappointment. The object of the top priority secrecy this enigma wrapped in a mystery, turned out to be nothing more or less than a long, low, concrete water trough, or food bin, 
or potato pit containing clay and some flowering shrubs. At the centre of this object there arose a sort of bird bath from which blossomed a plastic simulation of flames. This revolved to the accompaniment of thin jets of water and by virtue of inner luminosity changed colour frequently. It was officially called the Bowl of Light, but Miles Nogopoline rechristened it the Tomb of the Unknown Gurrier. It was immediately the cause and the centre of the sort of row that Dublin excels in, with everybody getting in on the act. Letters to the editor proliferated, and politicians howled piteously across the floor of the doll in bitter acrimony. Some said it was beautiful, others said it was appalling. My aunt said it made her proud to be Irish, while Michael McLemore felt that it was surely the nearby ice cream parlour owner's answer to the gardens of Versailles. The argument might have ranged on indefinitely were it not for the fact that one night the bowl of light was seized bodily and consigned to the murky waters of the Liffey. The trough, our high-rise flowerbed, lingered for a few more years, but it too was eventually obliterated by bulldozers, and the original island and lampposts were replaced on the bridge as quietly and unobtrusively as possible. Ah well. All these things took place a generation ago, and the bowl of light proved the most vulnerable of the street's monuments and had the shortest life. Yet none, while it spun, that little perspex souvenir of Las Vegas caused quite such a stir. Not even Lord Nelson. I was in Dublin a few days ago. Now I'm back on the foothills of Croke Patrick, overlooking Clue Bay to Neffin. I'm creeping back again into my body, regaining possession of myself. For to me, the essential difference between life in the city and life in the country is the difference between living from inside out and from outside in. In Dublin, I feel like a scrap of paper carried hither and thither by the wind, battered and assailed and buffeted. In the beginning I resist. I vainly attempt to maintain the slow and the even tenor of my normal life, which means to set myself in opposition to my surroundings. And of course I fail with an expensive spirit and an intake of another kind of spirit. It may be a form of vanity, but I'm going to stick to it. A man, I can't speak for women, has the right to call his soul his own, to preserve that which is essentially himself, whether it be good or bad. This is what I mean by living from inside out and from outside in. In my 
and frequent excursions to the city, the outside pressure seems to me to be too great. The machine, the mechanics of city life, have attained too great a power and in return pay less and less for the subservience which they demand. You pay in the expense of spirit and you don't even get a receipt. At every corner, my ears are assailed by what nowadays passes for music. To cross the road has become an athlete's feat. My eyes are bombarded by advertisements for things which don't interest me. Simply all my activities seem to be occupied in either resistance or subjection to that which was alien to me. And at the end of the day, I felt not alone exhausted, but cheated. Here in the country, I may for that period have been quite idle, have done nothing, achieved nothing. But I myself, even in my idleness, have expressed myself. I think that it was Montaigne, a sadly neglected philosopher, who wrote, You say that you've done nothing today. Have you not lived? On this morning's programme, which was a selection from the early days of Sunday Miscellany, we heard Flying Saucers by Anthony Cronin, first broadcast in 1971, and after that was Childhood in Donny Kearney by Val Kearns, first broadcast in 1975. Then we had November Fair by Patrick Kavner, read by Pat Laid, and that was from the very first edition of Sunday Miscellany in 1968. Bowl of Light by John Ryan was first broadcast in 1975, and finally, Musing from Clue Bay in the Shadow of Croke Patrick by Eric Cross, also from the first edition of Sunday Miscellany in November 1968. The music was Tongeberg by uh, Kraftwerk, Pastoral from The Creatures of Prometheus by Beethoven, played by the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, then She Moved Through the Fair, performed by Fairport Convention, and finally, the second movement from Mozart's Horn Concerto No. 3 in E-flat, performed by the Dresden Philharmonic. The producer was Lorcan Clancy, Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon, and the series producer is Sarah Binchy. You can listen back at rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany and follow the program on Facebook, Twitter, and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the program on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.